Dom McWhorter is a linguist, a professor at Columbia University, and a best-selling author. His new book is Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you with us today. Thank you. So I, I thought it would be good to start with uh, a bit of background, because I think some people have the impression that you got interested in race issues in the last five to 10 years, and, and here you have a new book. But I, I've been reading your, your work on this for at least 20 years, and I, I remember uh, your book, Losing the Race, back in 2000, really left an impression on me. And I wanted to ask you, first, what are you seeing uh, what's changed since then in, in terms of your perspective and what led you in particular to respond with woke racism? What was the trigger uh, event or incident for you? Well, actually, you're right that I think many people think I started writing about race five or six years ago because we can only follow so many people. But I did start now over 20 years ago and I wrote Losing the Race because I was really dismayed at the state of the discourse on race in America at that time. And I thought it was getting better in the late aughts and into the teens, but then things really went backwards. And I think a lot of it had to do with the advent of social media and what that meant in terms of how, especially the shooting deaths of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown were processed. And here we were in the summer of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd and everybody inside during a pandemic, and I think yearning for a certain connection. And suddenly it seemed to me that the race debate had gone right back to where it was when I wrote Losing the Race. When I was actually writing it in 1998. It came out in 2000. And I felt that an awful lot of very sensible, intelligent people were rather willfully not making any sense about race issues. I never thought I was going to write another book about race because frankly it's for most people kind of a niche interest and i kind of thought i'm not sure whether it's worth it as opposed to just writing journal articles about journalism articles about it but something was so wrong by june of 2020 that i thought that someone needed to write about this who was one black and two neither especially young nor especially old i thought to myself i can't be rejected as not having lived a bit but then on the other hand i can't be rejected yet as an old man. And I figured it's time. And so I wrote Woke Racism, despite the fact that to dwell on issues such as these can be kind of a pain in that these are very gloomy topics that people have major disagreements about. It's very easy to be thought of as a bad person when you discuss things like this, but the book needed to come out. So it came out. So you start with a few examples of people who have been uh, and characterized in the, in the way that you put it in the book, they, they were expelled as heretics or they'd be seen as uh, not aligned with the prevailing view. Um, just give, maybe you could sketch a picture of one of them that uh, you set up in the book, because I think part of what you're trying to show is the, the mentality behind this. So what, what sort of things are you seeing that led you to characterize these people as a religion? Well, it's at the point where a certain kind of person, and they're overrepresented in academia and the media, really do see themselves as priests of a kind. They wouldn't use that word, but that doesn't mean that it isn't the same concept. And their idea is that battling power differentials, and especially ones that involve white people's power over others, must be the central concern of any kind of serious effort 
in society. And there's been an element of this in especially academia and the media for a while, but it really crystallized a couple of years ago. And so just to take one random example, there is a white, was a white curator at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, who during the racial reckoning after May of 2020, said that he was definitely interested in looking more at art by people who weren't white, but that he wasn't going to stop looking at art by white people completely because that would be a kind of reverse discrimination. He was fired directly for using that term. He lost his job. And he is a late career, highly esteemed curator and not an especially colorful personality. There wasn't any history of people wanting him not to be around. He slipped once, slipped in the eyes of a certain kind of person. And that certain kind of person thought that his saying that meant that he shouldn't have his job. That's extreme. That doesn't make sense to most of us. And yet that kind of person is being allowed a disproportionate kind of power in our society because everybody is afraid of being called a white supremacist on Twitter if they don't do the bidding of people like that. It won't do. So in the book, you, you really stress this idea that it's not like a religion, it is a religion, and you indicate some of the points of similarity. And I wanted to ask you a bit about that. So you, and you've indicated in the example of the curator too, that there's a kind of priest's mentality in some people. What do you see as the strongest similarities? Uh, because one of the things that I think will, will leap out at people is there's not really, there's no church, there are no, there's no pope. There, some of the, the similarities just don't lend themselves to that. But what do you see as the strongest ones? Well, the strongest similarity in terms of the religious aspect is that if someone doesn't agree with this philosophy, it isn't just that you get mad at them, but that they have to be expelled that they can't be physically present, they have to be fired, they have to be pushed out of a window, they have to be shamed on social media. This behavior directly parallels what you see in, for example, the Salem witch trials. It's the same thing. The only reason we think of it as different is because we happen to use different lexical labels for it. But it's the same behavior. Or also the fact that religion often involves a suspension of disbelief. You have to let pure logic go. And it's the same thing here, where, for example, somebody in this world says we need to defund the police because of what happened to George Floyd and other people. And people who live in the communities where the police is supposedly to be defunded say, no, we need more police. And everybody just sits there. That makes no sense whatsoever. That's a complete suspension of disbelief that's required, that it's a legitimate thing to say we must defund the police in a community where all sorts of things are happening, where the only thing that will make things remotely livable is police. It makes no sense. That makes as much sense as Jesus walking on water. The reason that we have discussions where we allow things like that to get by is because this is what an anthropologist would recognize if the anthropologist didn't know our language as a religion. And we have to deal with it as a religion, and that includes making sure that it doesn't take over matters of state, which is what this religion is trying to do. I wanted to add a question about sort of the, the genesis of this phenomenon. So in one respect, you said you thought things were getting worse uh, since 2000. Uh, and you, had, you, you wrote uh, at the time that Obama was elected, you, you saw that as a significant step forward. So maybe separating out the debate around race from the state of racism in the culture. So a lot of people will say to us today that things are as bad as they were in the Jim Crow era. 
how do you evaluate the actual state of racism the people experience? Well, it's pretty simple. If a segregationist from the South were brought into modern America, reanimated from 1914 and brought into modern America, they would be absolutely revolted at the amount of black success that they would see and at the extent to which black people and blackness has completely permeated the culture, the extent to which black and white people date and marry, that person would be absolutely revolted. Now to say that nothing has really changed in 50 years or even in 25 years, despite the fact that that is so obviously true shows that once again, we're dealing with religion. Racism exists, sure. It's always going to exist, but the question is how much does racism exist and how much of an obstacle is it to black success? And we are a culture where it's considered enlightened to exaggerate about racism out of a sense that that shows that you're a good person. But when that exaggeration means that you stop thinking about what actually helped black people, then we have a problem. So one of the things that left out, left out of me, I, I'm going to hand this off to you, Ankar, in a second to put a question forward. One thing left of me in your analysis of the people who are the zealous uh, core or nucleus of this phenomenon, not necessarily the people who are going along with it as crowd followers. And I, and I understand that you see this as a spectrum or the variation of levels of intensity. One thing that left out at me is that for someone to deny the kind of progress you're talking about and insist that things are as bad as they were and for them to be on a footing where they're constantly trying to signal their own loyalty to this view and to expel people. And so all these behaviors that you characterized as, as essentially similar to, to religious zealotry. One of the things I wondered is whether you're being too kind to them. Because um, if I understand correctly, your argument is that a, a, a big part of what motivates or a, a, attracts people to this is a sense of meaning or purpose in their life. And, and I think I, I, I see that, but I wonder just the, the desire to expel people as heretics, the, the, the denial of the obvious facts or the facts as you characterize them being so clearly visible. I, I mean, how do you actually evaluate them? Uh, what's your sense of that? Well, I am reluctant philosophically to tar too many people as broken or obnoxious. You have to really bring me a lot of evidence before I'm going to go there. And so what I sense you getting at is that people like this are really, really irritating. I mean, I completely hear you there. This kind of person has the, the smugness, the sarcasm, the self-assuredness, when frankly, usually what they're arguing from isn't terribly coherent. And so you have this person who feels that they found the final answer when they're not really reasoning very clearly. It's really irritating. However, so many people fall into this that I think the economical explanation must be that there is some kind of payoff that fundamentally good people get. And what this is, is there's a sense of belonging. There's a sense of being ahead of the curve. There is a desire that all of us have to show that we're good people. That's basic to human relations. And it happens that in America, because we've come so far on race, one of the ways that you show you're a good person is to be really obnoxious about racism. I fundamentally talk about religion. I can pardon people for this. However, where it holds black people back, we need to blow the whistle on it.
Um, I'm interested what you said early on about that you thought in the aughts and the teens things were getting better and then in the in the kind of recent last five years and with the growth of social media so that something is really wrong and thinking of this as a religion and so it's coming from people advocating an ideas and a worldview do you think that so from a kind of intellectual academic educational perspective there were swings from 60s to today or was it if you look at the intellectual academic world it was gradually but inexorably getting worse and worse and it's now you see that as having more of a cultural effect so do you see swings there or do you think of it as no it was going bad to worse academia always had a tilt of this kind it was said 25 years ago that academia was being taken over by tenured radicals i think that was exaggerated rather there was a healthy presence of tenured radicals who would determine discussion however despite the fact that academia is only one part of society it was always there i don't think that there was any kind of swing or any kind of retreat among people with phds but yes what happened a couple of years ago is that the take that used to be largely limited to the college town crowd started being accepted as what mainstream people were supposed to think. And that's a problem because what those quote unquote tenured radicals think has a very diagonal relationship to helping real people in the real world. Um, and do you, in, in one of the sections in the book, um, where you you I think it's chapter three where you're talking about black people settling for the religion as part of it makes them feel whole the W H O um, you bring up that that it there may be sort of an ironical aspect I think you put it something like that that the success in the sixties at a kind of political legal level of dismantling Jim Crow and segregation was too easy. So there wasn't the whole struggle sort of, of overcoming it despite the bigotry and the legal obstacles. And that prevented, or at least had an element of preventing a, a feeling of pride in having overcome this how much do you think that that plays a causal role versus that the leadership is telling so part of what you're also arguing is that there's a um if i if i get it right that there's a real victim mentality and that that's pushed to see oneself as a victim in terms of the causal force of those two do you see them sort of as equal because i would think that the, the leadership what they're how they're teaching people to process their experience would be the causal driver and not so much because it, it's not like there wasn't a lot that was overcome even if in a in a certain way it may have been easier than in in other instances yeah it's it is there is an irony which is that the civil rights movement and the civil rights victories were unique in human history in that white america the oppressors to an extent came to a realization and they came to it more in the 70s and 80s than they did in the 60s that not only segregation but racism is wrong that's an advance 
But unfortunately, it creates a basic narrative in the eyes of most Black leaders, which is that the way that Black people get ahead is to make white people change their minds. Whereas in the past and everywhere else in the world, oppressed groups feel we're going to get ahead despite what anybody thinks. We're going to play the game as well as we can, and we're going to get ours, and then we will be sitting at the table. Black America, in a way, is the first group of people who did not have to do that because they convinced the oppressors to change their minds. But it means that today we focus too much on trying to get the oppressors to change their minds more when really it, it isn't necessary. There are things that can happen without America undergoing this vast psychosocial change of mind that many quote unquote leaders think has to happen before anything else does. Yeah, it's it's weird. It doesn't mean that the civil rights movement shouldn't have happened. It doesn't mean that I'm not happy about 1964. But it did create what is now a defeatist and melodramatic frame of mind among many people who see themselves as speaking for Black America. Just to build on, on that, uh, that sequence of questions, one of the points you make in the book is that the anti-racist slash woke perspective is not exhaustive of the views among black people and certainly not maybe even not representative and so in a, a certain way if i understand your perspective it's being pushed by certain intellectuals i mean is that your is that still your view and talking to a lot of people since the book came out like are you hearing people resonate with you that yes this is not representing what we want to say yeah i think that a certain view we're used to is default among black academics. It's not some, it's you know 99 out of 100. And it is default among black journalists. I would say it's nine out of 10. And those are the people you hear from the most because they have the biggest pulpit. But if you talk to ordinary black people, that way of looking at things is there. I don't have any numbers in that sense, but I would venture that it's the minority because it's not normal for ordinary human beings to adopt defeatism as a kind of triumph. That's weird, this idea that your most proactive stance is to proclaim why you can't do things until things are perfect. That's not how people behave. That is a fragile, perhaps even very intellectual way of looking at progress that comes to people more naturally when they have PhDs or when they're in journalism. It's a religion as opposed to real world activism which oddly enough was often bolstered by religious thought back in the day. But yeah, I am not somebody who is speaking as an eccentric. My, my goal is not to say, hey, I'm black and yet I can manage to think of things this way. Here is my diverse view. What would the point of that be? I feel like I'm speaking for an awful lot of people beyond the hothouse of the university and the media press room. It's your point about uh, activism. And one of the things I took from the book is that you have, and I think understandably, a, a great deal of outrage at the people who are engaged in uh, what they see as anti-racism, but they're not really concerned with solving actual problems. Or that they, the kind of things that they push for, the expulsions and the, the shaming, don't in, a, in any meaningful way serve the the, the the welfare of people that they claim to be serving. So I, I'm, maybe you could say a bit more about how you think that this um, woke racism is harmful to, to black people. 
people and communities? Well, to take one example, the fashionable idea that we should eliminate standardized tests because black kids tend not to be as good at them as white kids. Because if black kids aren't as good at them as white kids, then the test is racist and so you get rid of it. There is a short step from there to saying that it's wrong to subject black kids to a test of abstract intelligence. And there is no step from there to saying that black people aren't as bright as white people. Yet we accept that because of the score of saying the test is racist and thereby accusing white society of having been engaging in racism over the past 70 years that those tests have been default. But what that means is that you're slandering black people as dumb because that's what everybody's thinking, although nobody's gonna put it into print except obnoxious people on Twitter. And you're also depriving black kids of learning the skill of taking tests like that. And it is a skill which they're gonna encounter again anyway. And so it's a racist thing to get rid of those tests. And yet for me to point something like this out is seen as somehow eccentric. So anti-racism means you get rid of the test because black kids aren't good at it. But no, you end up creating a new kind of racism. Anti-racism means that when you see more black boys than white boys being suspended from school for violence, you say that the reason for the disproportionate amount of suspensions must be racism. It must be bias. And you score, you get a certain kind of room to applaud. But in the meantime, there are reasons why more black boys are violent in school than white ones. Poverty is one of them, you might address that. But in the meantime, to stop suspending as many black boys for violence in schools means that black people going to school with those boys get hurt and their grades go down. Because as we all know, very often, black boys are going to schools where most of the other kids are black. None of this makes any sense. All of it only makes sense because there's a religion that says that the most important thing is to point out racism. What you do about it is considered a lesser issue. How much do you, th so this goes, Alon asked something about, are you being too nice to, and particularly, so the leadership of the religion, putting it that way. Um, how much is, do you think there is an element of, you don't want this cure. So not just that like, it doesn't make sense that as these a solution, you wouldn't want a solution because you're, it would disappear, religion would disappear. So, and you bring up that one aspect of, the, of thinking of this as a religion is there's a deep notion of original sin. Um, but original sin, at least in this world, you can never get rid of. And it's, if you think of it in Christianity, it's integral to the whole dynamic of the, the way I think the, the religion is, operates, that it, you would never want to get rid of it. Maybe in the next world, it can be overcome and so on, but in this world, this is the way things are. And there, I don't think there, I mean, it's, so how much do you think it is that they don't want solutions? Yeah, and again, for I the leadership. That, yeah, I mean, and this leadership is not formally anointed, but there's an extent to which a person derives a sense of life purpose out of this sort of thing. And so although this kind of person would never admit it and probably isn't aware of it, if racism disappeared tomorrow, they wouldn't like it because their whole sense of their purpose, their goodness, their reason for being here is based on 
pointing out the existence of racism. And I hate to say it, but this is especially the case with a certain kind of black person, where if you couldn't engage in being the professional victim, you wouldn't quite know where to stand. You wouldn't quite know what you were for, because your sense is that the most significant thing about you is that you're a survivor of ongoing white racism. That can give you a whole sense of purpose in life. That can be your whole psychological foundation. So yeah, I wouldn't say that these people are invested in keeping things the way they are, because that would imply a self-consciousness that I don't think most human beings have. We all live day to day, hour to hour. They're not consciously invested in it. However, they are not truly committed to seeing something different from what they see. Progress to them is something to always swat away because if they allow that progress happens, then it feels like a diminishment of their selves. And yes, I sympathize with that. I can imagine that sense that if things are getting better, then who am I? Nevertheless, it can be quite irritating to deal with such people day to day, face to face. You gave the example of, of students being um, suspended from school in, in disproportionate uh, numbers. I'm curious about your perspective on the uh, remaining or persistent forms of racism, because one, one of the points you make is that there are, there are kinds of racism over and above the sort of overt prejudice of you can't, you can't eat at my lunch counter, you can't work for me, that, but they're more woven into policies or practices of the past. And I'm curious to unpack a bit what you think of as, are there cases of racism in are there um, manifestations of past racism that survive, even though things, as you say, have improved? Uh, and and where do you see those kinds of things? Well, a good example of that is that when schools desegregated in the 50s and 60s, black kids often encountered openly racist white teachers and students. That happened, especially in the 60s when these desegregation efforts really stepped up. And that created a culture where black kids thought of school as the white man's game, and they started calling each other white for liking school. That started in the late 60s. That still goes on today because it's become a kind of meme of black teen identity. That's what happens to perfectly innocent people. It's not that the teachers today are racist in that way. It's not that students are racist in that way. Whatever subtle racism there may be is nothing like it was in, say, 1966. But Racism created a sense that school is for other people. Now, the modern anti-racist looks at black kids today saying, what do you think you're white for liking school? And says that it must be because white people are being racist against them and that we therefore need to teach teachers to not be subtly racist. We need to talk to white kids and examine how they might be being subtly microaggressionally racist against black kids. We all know deep down though that that's not the issue. It's that a meme has gone forth and settles in regardless of external conditions. This happens with human beings of all kinds. And so what you need to do is work on that sense of identity and tweak it. However, to tweak it is not to battle racism because the racism that created it was now several generations ago. And most of the people who did this racism are either dead or old. But the modern paradigm can't accommodate that. The modern paradigm pretends that social history, only when it comes to the descendants of African slaves, is simple. There's racism or there isn't. That doesn't, unfortunately, that doesn't help anybody. 
Is it, I wanted to pursue, I'll hand it back to you in a moment, Ankar, pursue a little bit your, um, the three planks that you suggest as, as ways forward or, or things that can improve the situation. I know the book is not a manifesto of here how, here's how to solve all these problems, but just to prove that there are ways to solve it. So what are the three uh, planks and why are they, you think, you think effective? Well, the book isn't a manifesto about here's how to solve it only because the solution is really rather brief. I really think that we don't need as massive an effort as is often supposed. What we need is for one, there to be no war on drugs because the war on drugs means that a black man from an underserved community can, if he chooses, make half of a living by taking advantage of the black market in hard drugs. If that black market didn't exist, those men wouldn't make that choice, period. So get rid of the war on drugs, not because you know drugs are fun or something like that. There are other reasons to get rid of the war on drugs, but get rid of the war on drugs because it destroys black communities in creating that black market temptation, which is completely understandable in its attraction, but it needs to be eliminated. That black market also brings the cops into black communities. Drugs have an awful lot to do with why the police have to pay more attention to poor and mostly black communities than other ones. Get rid of the war on drugs and that would solve an awful lot of the problem with black men and the cops, which is what most people would think of first. Then the question is, how are those men gonna make a living? And it would be most likely solid vocational education not four years of college and then going and becoming an accountant or something like that, vocational education, where you can make the good living that we all rather ironically notice that say plumbers make, that would be the first step. Their children maybe would go to four years of college and become a, you know, a middle manager, but vocational education so that we get started right where things were in the 1950s and 60s until everything changed. And so that, championing vocational education and getting rid of the idea that the default American experience is to go to four years of college. And we need to change schooling. We need to teach reading better. And I think many people process that as this odd little thing that I kind of toss in. They think that maybe I'm some sort of specialist in education. I'm not. Frankly, education interests me not at all. I am not a school teacher. But the fact is, if kids who do not come from book-lined homes are not taught how to read via sounding out the letters, i.e. phonics, then they don't read well. And if you don't read well, then you don't do math well. You don't like school. Next thing you know, you're selling drugs on the corner. Black kids, especially poor black kids, just like poor white kids have been proven to learn to read more easily and better when they're taught via the ways that reading scientists have shown are effective. Education schools pay no attention to this. That needs to change. So that's it. No war on drugs vocational education, phonics. Those three things, if we could wave a magic wand, would turn Black America around in a single generation. And white people examining themselves for their privilege would have nothing to do with it. How much of the appeal of the this religion do you think is coming from the a growing awareness of some of these problems. And then if there's not a real rational scientific look at what is the actual nature of the problems, what has led to them, what would be a way to address them now, um, even if the history, as you put it, that there's a racist element 
in the history. That doesn't mean that's the way to address the problem now. That because there's not much discussion it, that's rational scientific, but people see and maybe in a growing way see there's problems and all they're being given is a religion that is, uh, I mean, to put it kind of charitably, an oversimplified account of the, of a of giving a causal story that's not true, but it's at least it seems to make some sense of this. So how much of the appeal sort of that this is now getting cultural traction outside of the universities and academia? How much do you think that is part of what is going on? Well, there really is a problem in that the idea that what we need is to wag our finger in white America's face is appealing. There's a drama to it. There is a sense that somebody you know, is paying. Somebody is on the hook and we're not going to let them off the hook. All of that has a certain kind of visceral appeal, but that visceral appeal is diagonal to what actually helps people in the real world. And so, unfortunately, you end up basing things on symbols. And so I hate to be ad hominem, but for example, Ibram Kendi is somebody who, let's face it, if his name were Thomas Jones and he wore his hair short, nobody would have any idea who he was. A lot of the reason that he's famous is because he wears dreadlocks and he has a vaguely Muslim sounding name and there's a drama to it. And so somebody like him is basically saying, white people, you've got to pay. Racism, anti-racism, you're all racist. All of that is showbiz. I don't think that he's doing it deliberately, but nevertheless, people are less listening to what he's saying than seeing what he is and what he looks like. That's not what civil rights is supposed to be. Nobody cared what Martin Luther King looked like and nobody was waiting for him to have an X in his name. This isn't about Kendi specifically, but there is that sense that drama is as important as actually helping real people. That's been a problem on the black scene since the late 60s. It was then that or threatening oratory and putting your fist in the air took the place of actually thinking about what real people need. We're still in the same place. Fashions change, but the essence is the same. It's a problem. So I, I know uh, you have a hard stop coming up. I wanted to ask one final question. Uh, I think you're familiar with the work of Thomas Chatterton Williams. And, or, mm -hmm. and the one point that he raises that I wanted to put in front of you and get your reaction to is one of the things I take him to be arguing is that the concept of race is something that is really problematic. Like it's not to deny that there are cultural phenomena that are, are associated with it, but just as a, as a biological issue, it's problematic and it's something we would do well to let go of and stop thinking in terms of race, both black and white and other races that people identify. I'm curious, do you think that is a direction that will be useful? What's your perspective on that? And I'm just curious your reactions. Thomas is right. Really, the whole sense we have that there is a such thing as a black person and that if a black person starts chafing at the definition, there's something wrong with them and they don't like other black people, etc. None of that makes any sense. I mean, really, you would have thought that we would be trying to get beyond what used to be the one drop rule that was enforced by bigoted white people 100, 150, 200 years ago. But here we are. 
And, you know, it's one of those things. Thomas and I have always had a polite disagreement about this. I just say that there's some things that are so hard to get across that maybe the battle isn't worth it. And in our times, for most people in America who identify as Black, to question the idea that there is a such thing as Blackness because race is biologically, it's not a fiction, but it's a continuum concept. It's hazy. To say that, therefore, why are we insisting on this issue of Blackness as opposed to people being hybrids? That makes a certain kind of Black person so very angry that I don't see the point in indulging in that debate for at least a generation. And it's funny, it doesn't take a while for that generation to come up. It reminds me of Sandra Day O'Connor saying, affirmative action will be needed for another 25 years. She says that in 2003. And what she was doing was pushing it way, way ahead. Here we are in 2021, and that feels like it was 10 minutes ago. But I would say at least a generation, because it makes too many people so angry, as one can see by looking at how Thomas has responded to on Twitter, that I'm not sure there's any point. We're going to have to pretend that race makes sense for a while. But yeah, I mean, I have daughters. Their mother is white. And based on the time that I was raised in, the idea is that they are black girls and that there's no question about it. I'm not seeing it in 2021. They're going to grow up in the in the 2020s and the 2030s. I think they are biracial. I think they're just mutts. I don't know if they're going to grow up and identify as African-American women. Things have changed. However, I'm not going to spread that too wide. Thomas is more advanced than I am. I want to see certain concrete things happen. Then we can start opening up to that reality and stop, stop suspending disbelief about that. Well, I really appreciate your joining us today. Thank you for your time. Uh, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Ankar. Yeah, thank you for joining us. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.